You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. So, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> let me welcome you to the Institute of Peace. My name is Bill Taylor. I'm the Executive Vice President here at the Institute. Um, most of you have been here before, some of you many times, but let me just remind those of you who are first time that uh, while we've been in this building since 2011, we've been going, working, uh, looking to ways to solve conflicts around the world since 1984. Um, and so this is uh, what we do. We focus on conflict. Um, and today, we're focusing uh, on conflict, uh, war by other means. Uh, this is a, a great opportunity for us, in particular with Anne Applebaum. Uh, no one has thought longer or harder about this issue. I think this is fair to say. She, she's been thinking about this for a long time, writing about it for a long time. Um, started writing her, her book, which I highly recommend, uh, uh, Red Famine on, uh, on Stalin's War on Ukraine. She started writing this in, in 2010, um, but only when it was not a main topic, let's say. Um, now it is. Uh, now it's a, a very, a very topical. Just, this book just came out last year. Uh, Anne has written for many publications, uh, including yesterday on the opinion page of the Washington Post, and we'll get to this article in a minute, Anne, I, I suspect. Um, uh, on, on these topics, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner uh, for previous books, um, also now at the London School of Economics, and we'll, she's done some thinking about this topic at the London School of Economics and runs a, runs a, runs a, a program there on disinformation. Um, so um, we are very pleased to have you uh, and Anne, and Anne will start off with uh, a couple of remarks. Uh, about the work she's been doing, how to think about this kind of a problem. Um, that will probably suggest a couple of questions that I will pose. Um, I will be very interested to turn it over to you to ask her questions uh, that, are, that are on your mind on this topic. So, Anne. Well, All right, so thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, it's nice to be back at this great institution again. Um, I should say my book about Ukraine is about a much earlier version of Russian disinformation. Um, it's about the 1920s and 1930s. It is. Um, and you will find parallels to the present, some of which I lay out in the book, and particularly the last part of the book. Right but, at the end, the, you'll notice right. these parallels, right? Right. But So and what I'm going to talk about today is not that, although I'm, if you want to ask me questions about the Ukrainian famine um, in 1932-33, I'm really more than delighted um, to talk about it. Um, so this. This topic of Russian disinformation, um, I've, I've been around Washington before speaking about it at different times. And you know, almost each time I do it, there's a greater understanding. I think when I would first bring this up um, three or four years ago, people would look at me a little oddly and say, well, that, OK, well, that kind of thing, maybe that's important for Poland. But you know, really, why? I'm not sure why it's of interest to us. And I think we all now, um, after having watched both the um, the Russian reaction to the chain, to you know, the the, the follow-up to the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, and then Russian involvement in a series of elections, um, including our own. People feel a little bit um, differently about it now. Um, 
I, I, you know, I really have a, I have a lot to say about this issue. I run a small program now in London, um, which does some research around it. We, I can talk a little bit about that if you want more specifically, different kinds of research. Um, but so I'll just offer at the beginning just a few different ways to think about both what it is and what we can do about it. Um, first of all, I think it's important to understand that it's part of a larger ecosystem. Um, it's a part, these are, what these really are is political influence operations. And because this is a U.S. Institute of Peace, I think it's important to say some of them are also connected to current or future military operations. Um, as an example, uh, I just met, um, I met with some people uh, last week who work in the Baltic states and who were talking about uh, Russian work with these kind of paramilitary organizations in Latvia and Estonia. Um, these are paintball groups or airsoft groups, or they are um, there are places where young people can meet and shoot at targets. And um, the use that these have been, I've, I've written a column about this in the past, and um, the use of those as a way to, and some of them now have used FSB insignia on their uniforms. So this is a way in which um, the Russians are seeking to create friends and allies in Latvia. And the, um, the point of it was, as they said to me, one of them said to me was, well, you know, what we, the way we understand this is that this is simply the Russians creating options for themselves. It doesn't mean they're going to invade Latvia next week. It doesn't mean they may ever invade Latvia. But just in <coughs> case the possibility came through, they're doing an advance recruitment and information campaign around um, you know, in Latvia to prepare that. And I think that's one of the ways in which to think about what the purpose of this is. Um, but it's part of a larger ecosystem. There's, um, there in, there it's connected to cyber hacking and cybersecurity. It's connected to um, economic, um, so, you know, search for economic influence, political influence, political influence buying, as well as legitimate political influence and diplomacy and so on. So it's a piece of larger operations, and it's a piece of a larger strategy. Um, the, the, the difficulty that, oh, and I should also say it's customized to particular countries. So Russian influence campaigns in Germany look a lot different from Russian influence campaigns in Latvia, which look, again, different from them in Bolivia and look different from South Africa. And as a, they often have um, different pieces and different goals. In Europe, the strategy in general, and this is, you, know, it's, you don't have to be uh, screamingly original to say this, is um, Russia has a clear interest in breaking up NATO and in persuading the United States to leave Europe, um, create, as well as in breaking up the European Union um, and undermining it. This is for a variety of reasons of their own. The Russians see um, um, the European Union as a competitor, and even an ideological competitor. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an organization that is interested in uh, uh, democr you know, democracy, rule of law, um, freedom of speech, um, whether or not you think it's, it's, it's good or bad, those are its stated goals. And for these are, these are ideas and values that are the Russians see as threatening to them. And so they seek to. So it's not very hard to understand what the general strategy is. And of course, had I said this a year or two ago, it sounded ridiculous. How could the Russians possibly break up the European Union? Um, more recently, you can begin to see how it could be done you know, by aligning themselves with far right and far left anti-European parties in each European country. And so in Greece, that might be the far left. In Germany, it might be the far right. Um, in another country, it might be somebody else. And seeking to promote and amplify those narratives inside those countries. So, that's, so you need to understand it as part of a bigger strategy and as one tactic among many. Um, but it is the one tactic that we're not used to and we were very unprepared for when it began. 
um, to function. Um, there are a lot of reasons why it's quite difficult to think about um, and why difficult to respond to, partly because um, it breaks down the line between a domestic and, an, and a foreign issue for many countries. So if you are, I don't know, the Swedish government and you're thinking about Swedish elections in September and you're thinking, well, you're worried about um, your, your security services are worried about, you know, the Russians attempting to amplify the, you know, the, the language of the Swedish far right in your country. Well, what do you do about that? Because the Swedish far right is, I mean, other than the, you know, violent, we're not talking about violent extremisms, this is a legitimate part of Swedish politics. Um, you're hardly going to ban it, you know, um, just because it's pro-Russian. You know, it's not illegal. It's not illegal to like um, some things the Russian government does. It's not. Um, and so the, the line between um, what is foreign and what is domestic policy is particularly different for Europeans and actually indeed for us to, to sort out. And that makes it difficult to think about and difficult to act against. Um, uh, it's also the, the, the motivations for people who... Who, who participate in Russian disinformation campaigns are also very various. Some of them are financial. So we did a project looking specifically at the German elections and Russian involvement and also international alt-right involvement in the German elections. We discovered, and I'll make a long story short, one of the things we discovered was a, a okay, it's a botnet based in Nizhny Novgorod that was promoting the German far right, the, um, the, alter, the alternative for Deutschland. Um, so what else was this botnet doing? It was promoting the AFD, the German far right. It was also um, promoting an escort service in Dubai. Um, it was also, um, I think there was a, it was promoting some companies based in Donetsk in Eastern Ukraine. So in other words, this was a multi-purpose organization that was created. Somebody was doing it for money. Somebody had paid them to work for, you know, so understanding the motivations of these different actors is, is, can be difficult. So that's a financial one. Um, we also discovered what were clearly volunteers. It looked like American and Swedish and other alt-right trolls who were voluntarily amplifying Russian narratives, you know, so trying to understand who are they and what their motivations are. So these are, there are different actors in this space and they have different motivations. You can't think of, it's not as if they're all, you know, KGB agents. It's a much more complicated picture in a more complicated world and it's more difficult to think about. And one of the, um, one of the, uh, you know, one of the conclusions that we came to is that fighting Russian influence in Germany is going to look a lot like fighting the extreme right. It's going to be a similar way of, way of thinking. So that's just a few words about kind of what it is. Um, you know, how to think about pushing back against it. Um, there, is, there is no silver bullet. I mean, sadly, there is no thing I can say, you know, if only the US government would solve, you know, would fund X, then we would fix the problem. Um, I don't think it's going to work like that. I don't even think that the, some of the traditional ways in which we fought um, disinformation in, in, the, in the past, or we used to call it propaganda, um, will work quite as well now because the nature of the information world has changed. Um, uh, but we, you know, we can think in some broad categories. We can talk about, um, you know, fighting its influence in Europe. We can talk about defense. We can talk about empowering the people who are already doing this well, whether that's networks of fact checkers, um, networks of counter extremists. Actually, counter jihadists and counter extremists are often the same people, and they can do, they act in very similar ways. Um, another piece of the defense is um, making sure that independent media exist. There are a lot of countries in which um, 
media has become almost a parody of its, I mean, you get in smaller European countries, media is often very, very weak. You know, it's, it's been captured by one group of oligarchs or another group of oligarchs and um, uh, is very easily captured and, and, and pushed in one, in one direction or another. And so empowering, finding ways of empowering independent media is part of the um, solution. Um, there may also be, um, you know, I'll be careful how I talk about this, but there, there may also be ways in which we should think about engaging Russian audiences. Um, so Russian disinformation in Russia is every bit as um, loud and vociferous as it is in Europe uh, and in possibly you know, just as dangerous, even more dangerous. I, I just wrote a piece that I think you were holding um, that was in the Washington Post Today, yes, yesterday, yesterday. yesterday. Yep. I can't. I don't know when my yep. pieces are published, yep. but um, pointing out that, that somebody's recently done a study of how Europe is portrayed in the Russian press, and it is, of course, overwhelmingly negative. Europe is falling apart. Europe is decadent. Europe is dying. Um, at the, and at the same time, Europe is aggressive. The Europeans are trying to, you know, they're going. They're about to invade Russia. They're about. They're called. They're, they aim to cause us trouble and difficulty. Um, it is really important from, um, and by the way, I should say that although this was a, there is a, one would have to find a, um, a different study. Um, uh, uh, you know, they haven't, the same group who did that study is now doing one on the image of America in Russia. Believe me, it is equally toxic. Um, the United States is our enemy. The United States is trying to destroy us. Um, you know, don't don't rule out nuclear weapons because they're still part of the mix. Remember that we still have them. This will protect us against the dangerous United States. So this this kind of language is um, is could also. I mean, one of the things that it could be used for is to lay the groundwork or to prepare Russians to accept um, greater Russian aggression um, uh, in Europe as well. So we have a we have a clear interest in finding ways of reaching Russian audiences and speaking. Um, directly to Russians, if if that's possible to do, and finding some new ways to do it, and we can we can talk about um, what that might be. Um, the other, I'll I'll conclude by saying one of the things that happens to everybody I know who's worked on the question of Russian disinformation is pretty quickly, you know, for historical reasons, um, the, the Russians were doing this first, and they were doing it more. Um, uh, they understood the, fall, the flaws of the internet. They understood how, how to use anonymity and how to use the ease with which you can create fake websites and so on to multiply um, false news as well as create false identities and false audiences. Um, but the techniques are open to anybody. Some of them are created just by the nature of Facebook. I mean, you can use Facebook now to do to reach different kinds of targeted audiences. Um, they can be used by the Chinese. They can be the, used by the Iranians. They could be used by um, people in Texas, I mean, it doesn't really, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's not um, there's no particular reason why this should be a Russian specialty. Uh, and beginning to think in deeper ways about the structure of the internet, how do we, um, how do we responsibly manage anonymity, how do we, um, how do we end the proliferation of dark ads, how do we, um, you know, give people some kind of reliable identity or some way of verifying information or verifying videos, for example, um, online. Um, creating a watermark is one of the expressions that I've heard mm. people use in Silicon Valley. So that, for example, when you see a picture of, you know, whether it's President Obama or President Trump saying something, you know that as we get into the, um, the world of fake, easily faked videos, which we're getting closer to, 
um, how can you identify that that one's real or that's really him speaking? You know, is, is there some system we can create? So beginning to think about the structure of the internet itself and this particular the structure of social media and how we prevent these campaigns at a much deeper level, um, I think also has to be part of the conversation. And that's really not, that's, that's a conversation for Washington and Congress to have with the tech companies and with the public <clears throat> and in which you don't even need to involve Russia at all. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll finish by saying that, you know, there are different ways of thinking about the problem. There are different kinds of solutions. And one of them may be, um, you know, might involve our, you know, American companies that have created these spectacular and amazing platforms and finding ways to make sure that they don't discredit or undermine um, the, the, the Internet altogether. So I'll finish there. And you're not finished there. We're, gonna, we're, going, we're going to uh, continue this. Thank you. That's a, that's a great opening. Uh, I'm gonna, there are a couple of things that I'd like to just pursue, and then I'm going to look to um, the people in this room. Um, you said that this uh, war by other means is uh, a good topic for the Institute of Peace. Yeah. Um, and we're reminded, of course, by that. Uh, war is the continuation of politics um, by other means. And, um, right. And... So, the, so if, the, if we work it backwards, um, if we're concerned, as we are, about conflict, violent conflict, um, and we go back to the hybrid warfare of which this information war is a piece, mm -hmm. um, it's the politics. Then. There's a policy there, and you alluded to some of these things. The, the Russian government, maybe the Kremlin, maybe Mr. Putin, has something in mind, and you mentioned a couple of those kind of things. It gets you to elaborate on those. Um, break up NATO. Um, uh, right. Break up the EU. Um, um, occupy Eastern Ukraine. Occupy Eastern Ukraine, which again goes back to your point here on, on the Red Famine, on, uh, on Stalin's war on Ukraine. Stalin was real concerned about Ukraine as well. Um, uh, uh, the concern that the, that the Kremlin had in 2014 that, that Ukraine was going towards Europe um, triggered this, this thing. So uh, what, how do you describe, how do you think about the policy that, uh, that, the, that, that extend into hybrid warfare and into war? So 2014 is, a, is an interesting moment because a lot of what, um, you know, whether it's both the overt propaganda and RT and Sputnik and all these kind of tools, as well as the covert influence buying and so on had been going on for in Europe for a while. I mean, for a, you know, a decade. Um, we saw plenty of it in Ukraine before. I, you know, I saw it in Poland. I've seen it in lots of other places. Um, it wasn't brand new at all in 2014, but it's true that in 2014 it was dialed up um, in a way that it became much more visible to everybody else. I mean, I was kind of, as I said, I was banging on about the subject earlier. Um, and people would kind of say, oh, well, that's very interesting and it's very sad for Poland, but, you know, but, um, and uh, 2014 is an interesting moment because that, that's when you could see what the per, you know how in a specific um, conflict situation it could be used. And so what happened? Um, you know, first of all, why did the Russians invade Crimea? And second of all, how was it done? And um, why is because what did the Russians see in 2014 um, at the moment of the Maidan revolution? They saw Putin saw kind of his nightmare. There were young Ukrainians waving EU flags saying, um, we want an end to corruption and we want you know, democracy and rule of law. I mean, this is, this is exactly the kind of movement and the kind of demonstration that he worries most about at home. Um, and this is exactly the, you know, whether you call it a, 
it wasn't a color revolution, whether whatever you call it, however you describe it, this, this kind of movement that links together people who want a different kind of political system, um, different to his own, which is um, not, you know, kleptocratic and oligarchic rather than, uh, rather than de democratic and is based on you know, very profoundly cynical ideas about government. So what he feared most was this. So how does he undermine this? Um, you know, what, was the, what was the language they used? Um, if you remember, they started talking about Nazis. Mm -hmm. you know, these are the enemies of Russia. These people, they claim to be wearing the EU flag, but actually this is a Nazi movement led by, and for those of you who don't know Ukrainian history, you know, it's a Banderites, which means a Nazi-era um, Ukrainian independence movement. And he sought both in, inside Russia and outside Russia to portray this as a far-right fascist movement. Um, and let's not get into the you know, just, you know, de details of it, but um, as we know, the Maidan was actually a very complicated um, complex group of people. There were, you know, gay and lesbian groups testing, you know, demonstrating. There were people from all walks of Ukrainian society. You could find Nazis if you wanted to find them, or anyone not Nazis, but fascists. Um, but the, the, the Kremlin idea was, this is how we're characterizing it, and they sought very hard to sell that both inside Russia, inside Ukraine, and inside Europe. And to some degree, they had some success. I mean, you can, there were parts of um, the American left who bought this narrative. Um, you know, Stephen Cohen writing in The Nation wrote more or less this. Mm -hmm. in, you know, and these are legitimate people. I mean, this is not a you know, very legitimate um, writer and a legitimate magazine, so it's not like. Um, and the, and um, you know, that was one piece of it. It was an attempt to characterize this as an, as a, as an evil anti-Russian government and both to make Russians not want to um, uh, uh, you know, not not be attracted by those people waving EU flags, and also to um, denigrate Ukraine and the ideas and ideas of the West. Um, second piece, of, you know, second piece of disinformation we saw is that when the Russians finally began their invasion of Crimea, which was, um, you know, what was the first thing that happened? They said there is no invasion of Crimea. Um, you all, well, this is now too famous a story for everybody in this room not to know. But you know, these are these aren't real. They have nothing to do with Russia. They're just volunteers. They're just soldiers. They bought their weapons in, you know, in a local store. You know, I don't know where they got their armored personnel carriers. And you know, can't you just buy that at the local <laughs> Safeway? You know, so, um, you know, it, it, it kind of it sounds now ridiculous in retrospect because you know after a, a few weeks it became clear what it was. And actually now Putin has given medals to the people who led that invasion and so on. But I actually remember quite well the first two or three days, people were. Confused, and people said, "What is this? Is this separatists? Are these Ukrainians? Are they Russians? You know, what is it?" And there was a, there was a moment of international paralysis, which was quite key for the occupation of Crimea to take place and happen. So it actually was a very, very successful information operation, as ridiculous as it seems um, in retrospect. So you know, these are just two examples of how you can use language and you can use um, media to. You know, in order to shape how people perceive a conflict, to perceive their willingness or otherwise to intervene in it, to stop it, to negotiate it, um, or to participate in it. And of course, in Ukraine, um, there was an effort to inspire Russian-speaking Ukrainians to fight the new government as it, after the old president of Ukraine fled the country. Um, and this, I, I mean, this is an interesting example where I think Putin's strategy was, was quite weak because I think what he thought would happen was that Russian-speaking Ukrainians uh, were Russians, and that therefore they would rise up against what was perceived to be a nationalist government in Kiev, and they would defeat it. And actually, Russian-speaking Ukrainians 
um, are, are Ukrainians, um, or at least some of them are, or they feel themselves to be, or anyway, they were not, they were not, they did not see themselves as wanting to be part of Putin's Russia, um, or and certainly not part of, not to be run by, um, you know, gangs of you know, mercenaries controlled by the FSB in some unclear way, as which is how those those kind of rogue provinces in eastern Ukraine are now are now governed. And so that effort, that piece, that disinformation campaign failed. But it was certainly a they put a lot of effort into it. They continue to push those lines in eastern Ukraine. I mean the in a way Ukraine is a kind of petri dish for a lot of these issues, both for you know, the Russians experimenting with different ways to shape the political conversation and Ukrainians experimenting with different ways to fight back against it, which is a whole other <clears throat> interesting stuff. It's not an accident that one of the first organizations conceived as an anti-fake news or anti-disinformation NGO is the group called Stop Fake, which was created in, in Kiev um, precisely for this reason at that moment, because the Ukrainians saw, you know, exactly how this worked. And how, I mean, there was literally face photographs, fake video, fake stories were being used to tell and inc give an incorrect version of what happens in Ukraine. But um, so, 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 the, so yes, Ukraine is an important place to look, both because, as, as I said, that's where it was dialed up in a way that was most visible to us um, for the first time. And also, I think it's a, um, you know, it's a, you know, I don't think we have, I don't think we're at the end of this story in Ukraine or anywhere else by now. I mean, there's a, there's an there's an ongoing. Okay, um, I should also, the, but the Ukraine is also useful because you can then understand how this issue connects to others. Um, it can connect to kinetic military operations, to economic operations, to cyber operations, to hacking operations. I mean, the idea of hacking someone's email and then using it or or taping them to a conversation and then using that sort of private material and turning into a thousand different conspiracy theories and then kind of blasting them all over social media, this has been done now about 10 times. You know, this is not a new idea. It's been done lots of times. Um, the Russians figured it out sort of earlier than other people, but that doesn't mean lots of other people won't do it. So you know, the fact that we saw that in our election doesn't mean um, you know, it was invented here. Yep. Sticking for a moment um, with the purpose, with the policy that this is extension. Um, you, in your article yesterday, um, mm -hmm. in, your, uh, in the Post, uh, could be a more sinister purpose. Um, you've suggested that, the, that they would be doing this, one reason they may be doing it, because they have something else in mind. It may be diplomatic, it may be economic, it may be military. Um, um, without being alarmist, you had said that this is maybe something you would... So, the, as I, have I said this already? I mean, so, so the, as, as I would understand, I would explain um, to characterize this as the Russians creating options for themselves. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, the fact that they're, you know, portraying Europe as simultaneously weak and degenerate and falling apart and also very aggressive and anti-Russian um, could be useful in all kinds of ways. But among other things, it could be useful if there was ever a war with Europe. I mean, if you're fighting against a weak and degenerate and aggressive place, you know, then you're, you know, you would have motivation to, to fight against them. So, in the case that there would be some kind of conflict, which I'm not saying is being planned or, you know, is going to happen tomorrow or is being executed, um, or if the opportunity arose to, um, you know, whether in Estonia and Latvia or whether somewhere else, um, you're in the Balkans or somewhere in, you know, along some fault line in Ukraine, um, to fight that, you know, having prepared the ground this way. Um, might prove to be very useful. So 
watching the Russian narratives and understanding what's being said, and this is the argument about what they're saying inside Russia, this has nothing to do with us, um, I think is very important for people who are interested in you know, conflict prevention because you know, this is a, these are the kinds of narratives you would use and this yeah. is the kind of propaganda you would conduct if you were considering that there might be a conflict at some point in the future. Yeah. That conflict prevention is a big part of this, this building's work. I, I know. That's why I'm here. <laughs> and thank you for being here. Um, okay. Uh, let me give you an opportunity to ask uh, and, and questions. Uh, when you do, please just raise your hand. I will call on you. I think we will have a couple of people with mics that are uh, moving in the back. And uh, if you'll stand and state your name and then fire away. So who will go first here? Yes, sir. Right here. Uh, there we go. Yeah, hey, uh, Dan Arnato from the National Democratic Institute. Um, so I'm working in different contexts internationally on this problem and specifically collaborating with local groups who are attempting to do fact-checking and media literacy and other programs. Um, I'm curious, from your perspective, if you've found other examples of Russian influence campaigns uh, outside of the former Soviet Union and Europe. Um, and what you are expecting for 2018 in terms of potential influence campaigns. I'm thinking particularly of Mexico as a potential opportunity, but even Brazil is a major election coming up and has repercussions certainly in the region. Um, but I'm curious if you have other examples in mind in terms of uh, ways Russia is attempting to project their influence outside of traditional spheres. Right. So that's, that's a great question. I mean, I... Um... <coughs> You probably know the the fact that you asked the question leads me to believe you probably know the answer better than me. Um, um, intervening in an election, and by the way, um, I should just as a kind of parenthesis, it's easiest to talk about elections because those are the most spectacular moments. You know when power changes in a democracy and when you can influence who gets to win. But a lot of these influence campaigns are very long term. Um, I mean, for example, you know the the the, the campaign to persuade. Um, you know, the German nation that NATO is a bad idea has been ongoing for a long time and will continue whether or not there are elections or not elections. So it's a little bit of a mistake to just look at elections, although I understand why people do it because it's the most spectacular. Um, the, you know, the second thing I will say is that do all of this stuff, you know, is technologically speaking, you know, by comparison to cyber hacking or other forms of, or, or, or cyber, you know, you know is, is technologically very easy um, you don't actually have to be in Mexico in order to mess around with the Mexican internet. I mean, this is one of the most amazing things about global media and global information systems. Um, all you need is a few people who understand Mexican politics, and you don't even need maybe even that many. Um, and you need a few people who have the time to, to, to get involved. In and this is just the online piece of it. I mean, there could also be political influence buying, which requires a bit more money, or, you know, or there could be economic influence or something. So um, I would not count um, Russian, you know, or indeed Chinese or other influence covert, you know, disinformation campaigns out of any election. Um, I, I have not personally worked on Mexico, but I am told there is uh, that lots and lots of people are involved in trying to swing the Mexican elections one way or the other, including narco groups, um, including Russians, including maybe others. So you know, so I'm, I, you know, I would say that I am aware of that. I'm certainly aware that they're interested in other Latin American countries, as I also heard Colombia mentioned. Um, I was in South Africa a year or two ago, and 
was told about um, Russian influence buying there as well as there's a big Russian um, power investment there as well. And so that may be another place where they're, you know, in those kinds of countries, my guess is their interests are um, economic more than political. I mean, although, of course, they're connected. At, you know, if you want a big power plant or nuclear power deal, then it helps to have the right people, you know, in the government. Um, whereas in Europe, I think they do have a big, you know, they have a they have a big and pretty clear strategy that involves um, undermining the current security order. And I don't know if that's this. I wouldn't say that that's the same all over the, you know, in other places. But um, certainly Latin America, certainly um, resource rich bits of Africa. Um, you know, I think the Chinese probably are have a lot more invested in Asia. But I wouldn't discount anything. I mean, again, it's it's very easy. It's relatively very cheap. It's not very high tech. You know, why wouldn't you do it? What would be the goal of that in Latin America? Um, putting someone, you know, in charge of a country who is going to be friendly to Russian economic interests. Yeah. Yeah. Or alternatively, um, you know, again, Latin Americanists in the room are going to know more th than me. Um, putting someone in charge of a country who is, you know, you know anti-American interests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and you can think, you can imagine in Mexico and Brazil and lots of other places yep. where that would be, that would make sense. Sure. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Wilson with Rutgers Law School. Um, I am aware of a study that was done by the Oxford Computational Propaganda Program yep. um, that was um, showing that, you know, Fake news, uh, they called it junk news in that, in that report. Everybody hates the expression fake news, so. <laughs> um, is mainly a problem on the far right. And um, the far right media in this, in this country responded, well, this is, this is not disinformation. This is conservative, mainstream, you know, far right, right wing media. This is our media. Um, it's not disinformation. So what, it seems to me there's also um, disinformation that is indigenous disinformation. Sure. And that this requires a different kind of strategy for dealing with. And I'm just wondering what your opinion and thoughts are. So this is, this is where you get to the difficulty of defining the problem. Um, this, you know, the, the line that we're used to thinking of between what is domestic, a domestic policy issue and what is a foreign policy issue has become blurred. Um, the nature of information now is that it's global and anybody can intervene in it. And um, you can be sitting in Moscow and you can participate, you know, with, you know, with gusto in the Mexican election campaign. So this is a new, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a change in the way we're used to thinking about these kinds of problems. And this is one of the reasons, I think, why we've stumbled so hard in trying to figure out what to do with it um, for exactly the reason that you just suggested, um, you know, uh, you know the 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 um, you know the I happen to know you know the Swedish government is very interested in thinking about Russian intervention in their elections, which are in September. But um, you know if the, if if what that's going to look like is a Russian attempt to amplify legitimate Swedish political parties, then what is the Swedish government going to do about it? I mean nothing. How can they do anything about it? It's not it's not in their it's not in the security services remit to block legitimate politics. Or as you say, um, you know, you can find far-right narratives in lots of places that have nothing to do with Russia. I mean, a, a very, the, maybe the best example of that is Marine Le Pen's 
party in France. So the National Front has been around in France you know, for many decades. Um, it has a direct lineage back to Vichy. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's been part of French politics for a long time. Marine Le, Pen, Marine Le Pen's father was involved in French politics for many decades. You know, she herself has legitimate followers in Fran you know, and, and has been a political actor in France all of her life. Um, the fact that her party is now funded by Putin and, um, you know, openly, and we, there's, there's no secret about that, that the, it's, it was, its election campaign was funded by loans from these kind of Russian Czech banks. You know, during the middle of the, Russia, of the French election campaign, she actually went to Moscow and met with Putin. Um, during, her, during the campaign, there's no secret about that. There's no, you know, nobody's denying these links. Um, uh, the... The, the, you know, the fact that there was a Russian trolling operation during the French campaign that was meant to help. You know, so all of this is, a, this is a difficult problem for the French to think about. I mean, there is no question that Marine Le Pen is a legitimate French political force, and nobody could deny that. Um, and that is why um, paying attention, you know, understanding how the, how, um, you, know, you know, what is it that Russian, oper you know, Russian influence is doing? It's seeking to amplify those voices who are the most, whom they prefer. And there are going to be people who say this is legitimate. You know, why not? Um, uh, that you know, it's that's just part of life, and it's just a little bit easier now than it used to be. Um, and then there are, um, you know, there's a second set of answers that are well, um, do we think foreign? You know, can should should we look at advertising? Should we look at foreign funding? You know, should there be? You know, are there ways of changing the electoral system or the electoral you know electoral regulation to you know to, to block that? Um, kind of, I, I would say in almost every country, you need to look at specifically at what's happening. The, the, the tactics are customized to each place, and there's some places where um, you could see how changing electoral laws or you know could fix the problem. And in other places, you need to think much more broadly about narratives. I mean, but I'll, I'll return to something I said before: fighting Russian influence, so-called Russian influence in Europe, is going to look a lot like, in a lot of places, like fighting the extreme right. And different countries have different views about the extreme right. I mean, in Germany, it's illegal, so it's not that hard to think about how you would fight it. You know, in Britain, not not so clear. They have different, you know, they have different kinds of hate speech laws. And you know, in this country, we don't have hate speech laws at all. Or not, not, um, you know, we we don't have. We have a much different attitude towards um, towards freedom of speech. So each country is going to have to come up with a different set of. I can't I can't give you a single answer that will explain what you do everywhere because these are. Um, these are, um, the, you know, these are answers that have to do with the nature of a particular given country and its political system. It's a good question. It's the, it's, it's not the. There isn't a single answer. There's a, there are multiple answers. Uh, sir. My name is Karwan Zabari. Um, let me shift to Syria. A two-part question. One, President uh, Putin was just sworn in today for another four years. Hmm. Can you give us what the outlook looks like? Do we expect the status quo to continue? Do we st expect a more aggressive Putin and I'll Russia? just get out my crystal ball, which is back here. And, so. uh, and then second, simply put, what's in it for Russia to do what it's doing in Syria? Um, so I can't, I mean, I don't, I don't like doing predictions. Um, I mean, I have no reason to think that anything in particular is going to change in Russia. I don't have any, um, 
you know, on the contrary, Putin seems to have been reinforced and, and so on. I mean, having said that, you know, there is a tradition in Russian history that everything is the same until suddenly it all falls apart. So, you know, um, we'll see. I don't, I don't have a good answer to that question. So Syria, um, again, I'm guessing there are probably people here who know more about this than me. Um, I think there, as in all these cases, I think there is a, there is a, I think there's a Russian, I should have answered this when you asked about Mexico, actually. I was thinking about Mexico, I was thinking about Latin America, but um, there is clearly a Russian strategy in the Middle East, um, maybe not one as carefully worked out um, as there is as the, as the European strategy. Um, part of the Russian strategy is about making Russia a presence there again and giving Russia a role in deciding what happens. Um, occasionally you hear these hints from Russian officials about some kind of Yalta agreement, redrawing the borders, whatever that's going to look like, and making sure that Russia has a seat at that table in the Middle East. So I think that's part of, it's part of, um, that's part, I think there's a domestic political reason why Russia is involved in Syria in particular, which is um, you could, the, the Ukraine narrative began to go bad at a certain point when they didn't, weren't winning in Eastern Ukraine, and it was clear that the Ukrainian, the idea of dividing Ukraine had failed. And actually, the war in Ukraine is not that popular in Russia. You know, the Russians don't hate the Ukrainians as a general rule, and there's tons of intermarriage, and these are profoundly connected countries that have been, you know, part of the same empires and, you know, fought on the same sides in lots of wars for many years, and it wasn't going that well. And the Syrian invasion, Russia's entry into the Syrian conflict happened right at that moment. It was a change of narrative. You know, look, we're fighting the jihadis. Um, you know, we're, you know, we, we've made Russia great again, and we're on this other stage. It was a, it was, it's been a useful narrative for Putin to have this, you know, this other, other conflict that he's, you know, that he's winning. Um, I think that's the second reason. I mean, the third reason, I think there is a, I mean, I hear, again, you may have a better sense of this than me. Um, there is an argument that they feel some genuine link to the Assad regime because they've been supporting it for many years, and it's, they've got bases there and so on. So you could say there's a, there's a piece of genuine strategy there. I really don't know how true that is. Um, and there's a fourth thing, which is that um, after the fall of Gaddafi, um, Putin, who does think in terms of global narratives, um, uh, was worried about the fate of dictatorships. Um, and again, he's almost said this on a number of occasions, as have other Russian officials. And the need to prevent an, a dictator from falling you know, this, this site of falling dictators, um, again, this is his domestic political concern. You know, he doesn't want, um, uh, he, you know, it's, it, you know, he, you know he do, he, the idea that there could be a people's revolution that could overthrow the dictator and establish democracy, you know, this is a bad idea for him. He would like to defeat the, make sure you know that that's not so and that can never happen. Um, and I think Syria was um, a case where, you know, again, he intervened in this area. Another reason for the timing of it was it was at a moment, if you'll remember, when it looked like Assad really might lose. And so it was an attempt to prevent Assad from losing and have those bad pictures of the dictator following and being replaced by, I don't know, whether a, even just a, even a different kind of government um, taking place. So I think you can look at all those reasons. I mean, I, I should add that the um, Russian disinformation campaign in Syria is remarkably similar in a lot of ways to the Russian disinformation campaign in Ukraine. I mean, there's, 
you know, I don't know that if there's a, yeah, I know there's lots of comparative politics courses. I don't know if anybody's ever done comparative disinformation <laughs> campaigns. But it's a very interesting one. So w the way the Ukraine one worked was by polarizing the conflict. It's the Nazis against, you know, against the good guys. You know, you, there was no nuance in Ukrainian politics, and the Syrian narrative has been the same. There's on the one side there's Assad, and on the other side are the jihadis, and we're fighting. And everybody who's against Assad is a jihadi. So it's this creation of a profoundly polarized narrative, and in which nuance is destroyed, and there's there are only two sides, and whoever's the group in the middle is eliminated from the conversation. That's part of what they've done there, which is again very similar um, to Ukraine. And just you know, as an aside, lots of scientific studies have shown that polarization is what very highly polarized audiences are. Um, much more susceptible to believing false stories than, than, than otherwise. So it's an interesting, um, you know, and the other, you know, the, the other, some of the tools and technologies that have been used in Syria are also very similar to what's been done in Ukraine. Um, the most remarkable one, again, I'm guessing you all know this too, but I'll just mention it to, to, as a reminder, is the extraordinary campaign that's been conducted against the White Helmets. Um, I actually looked... Um, I look at it periodically, and it changes because these algorithms change over time. If you, on the YouTube page, if you put white helmets into the little search box, um, on, a, on a day, a couple of weeks ago, I did this, and I got, um, you know, results one, two, three, and four were from RT, and they were attacks on the white helmets done by, by Russian television. I think number five was a link to a Netflix show about you know, about the White Helmets, and then numbers kind of six, seven, one of them was Al Jazeera, and then other than that, kind of six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 of the first 10 results were also RT. So the, you know, the, the attempt to flood the YouTube algorithm with um, video about a humanitarian organization, um, which, you know, literally, these are people who rescue children from the rubble, um, is a really extraordinary, and I think has been probably also a very successful um, uh, disinformation campaign. Uh, uh, you know, you, you tell me how well it works in Syria, but it's a, the same techniques and the same technology that have been tried in Ukraine are, are, are being used there as well. So I think, um, you know, seeing, you know, Syria, because of its prominence on Russian television, because its prominence in the domestic narrative, um, is also clearly something that's very important for Putin. Sir. Hello, Christian Kafazov, uh, LSC uh, alumni. It's right. uh, great Hi. to see you again. <laughs> I'm an LSC alumni too. Yes, I, rem I, uh, I remember when you taught uh, about four years ago. This was at 2014, and um, your your message was uh, considered not as relevant as it is uh, today. So, <laughs> um, I, I, I have a question. Uh, it's it's in two parts. One is, uh, how do you consider the recent um, NATO reaction against what happened in Britain uh, uh, as a loss for Putin, uh, considering especially since uh, the former spy is still alive and the diplomatic uh, reaction has kind of unified Europe more, mm -hmm. and how does the Russian propaganda uh, address this uh, reaction by, by basically uh, Russian, uh, Russians not being able to invest in London as much as, or, or at least that being scrutinized. And the other question I was wondering is, um, to what extent does uh, Putin also consider a propaganda victory, the disinformation campaign uh, against uh, the United States in the 2016 election? 
So I was wondering uh, what your thoughts are on those two issues. Mm -hmm. Um, so the NATO, the reaction to the, um, this, the poisoning of Skripal is a very interesting one because this, I think, was, and I, I mean, I know this was, that the British Foreign Office immediately understood as soon as that happened. Um, first of all, they immediately understood what it was because they knew who he was as soon as he was found, picked up by an ambulance. But they also immediately anticipated that there would be a disinformation campaign around it. And... One of the one of the points I sh I should have made is that not all responses to disinformation are information campaigns. Like it's not necessarily that you know if, um, that you respond to a lie with a fact check. That's not necessarily the correct answer. And sometimes the answer is um, in a different sphere. And so one of the first things the British said is that we're going to need um, we're going to need an, a kind of allied response to this. You know, we need a real, to, sh to demonstrate in real life, not just, you know, in a newspaper article or in a, in a social media campaign, um, that we all know what happened and that the knowledge is shared by a number of British governments and that it's, um, you know, and that we're, you know, we, you know, that we're reacting as a group. And so it was very important to the British from the beginning to get buy-in from other governments and the way they did what they immediately, they had some, um, they had some intelligence about how the operation, I mean, this is not a secret because they've now said this, they had some intelligence about how the operation was done and they, I mean, literally that day or the next day, they took it to Paris and, and, and kind of, I was about to say Bonn, that sounds old I am. Anyway, they took it to Paris and Berlin um, and Washington and they, um, you know, and they immediately said, this is, we know what's happened, we know what, what what was used, and we know how it was done, and will you support us on this? And they immediately tried to build. So in other words, their response to the event was immediately a kind of alliance-building exercise. Um, they also, um, I don't know that they knew this would happen, but once they saw it, they understood it. So one of the things that people have learned, one of the ways we now know that Russians react to um, an event that they want to deny or distance themselves from is to, they produce millions of narratives. So the famous one now is when the MH17, um, when, the, when the Malaysian plane crashed in eastern Ukraine, the Russian response was not just to say, no, we didn't do it, but to produce like 5,000 different narratives about who might have done it, ranging from plausible to implausible to, you know, a plane took off from Amsterdam and it already contained dead bodies and it was exploded deliberately over eastern Ukraine in order to, um, you know, in order to um, smear Putin. That, I mean, literally, that was one of the things that was put out. And so, and this, this Skripal thing has been very similar. You know, there have been, you know, it, the British did it, the Dutch did it, the Czechs did it, you know, the um, Skripal did it to himself. It was suicide. It was, you know, it was the British Secret Services who were trying to discredit it. You know, so that this process of putting out a thousands of narratives was something that happened right away. And one of the ways the British dealt with that was actually, it was, you know, it was quite funny. They made a little video showing the different narratives. And they also had this, the, the Foreign Office to, um, had it created a, you know, to, to, to people who write about this subject, they produce these emails where every day they would say, well, yesterday it was 17 narratives, now we're up to 19. And they would, they would, they would list the various narratives and pass them out to people and so on. So they, they again, anticipated this is what the reaction would look like and they, they produced um, responses to it. Um, was it, you know, so I think it was successful in that most people, um, both in Britain and in Europe, believed 
um, believed the British government version of the story. In the end of the day, that's what it's about, is who do you believe the British government or do you believe um, somebody else? Um, but the numbers who didn't believe it were still are still pretty surprisingly high. I saw a poll, and I don't, I don't know how good a poll it was, um, that showed something like 70% of Europeans believe the British government and 30% don't. And, and, the, and the, the person who showed me this poll was, a, was somebody in the British government. And he was very cheered by this. He was like, look, we won this argument. And I thought, oh my god, 30%? You know, <laughs> that's very high. <laughs> um, and again, the way it, the places in which the counter, you know, the, you know, oh, maybe it was the British who did it worked was, again, on the very often on the extreme left, both in Britain or the extreme right. Um, so, you know, we're still learning how to cope with it. I, mean, I think the British feel so far that it was a successful, you know, that they pushed back and they, and they created some, you know, real arguments and so on. But I think the, the jury is still out on what, on what happens next. Um, so 2016, you know, I don't have, you know, I don't, I don't have any access to the deep thinking of, you know, people in the Kremlin about whether this was a success or a failure. I mean, um, in that, in that, merely the use of those tactics and the, you know, the fact that they became part of the U discussion about the U.S. election, regardless of the result. Um, I think they would see that as having been a success. You know, look, we proved that there are things you can do to manipulate U.S. democracy. Um, and I think that was, so in that sense, it was success. Whether they like the outcome or not, I mean, I don't know. They're, they're, you'll, you can hear different versions of that from different people. So we're going to take last two questions here, uh, one here uh, and one there, right? If you take them both at the same time, Anne, that's okay with you? Yeah. And then let's, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mirko Kunz, I'm a, a former Fulbright scholar from Kyrgyzstan. So my question is, I mean, both are very short, and I know that for the first one, um, there is no simple answer. But is there anything that could stop Putin or um, make him to back a step back with all his uh, strategic endeavors? And my second one, I like the point when you said on uh, that we need to work with media that are able to be independent, although it's um, almost impossible to be independent in Russia, but uh, how to help them to stay independent longer than they normally do, and also gain popularity, especially in post-Soviet republics, where we know that historic bonds are so strong that a majority do not even believe to anything more what, um, um, I guess, Putin's Kremlin propaganda uh, Putin's uh, Kremlin dictates. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Good questions right here. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, my name is Crispin Clark. I'm from uh, a new peace initiative out of the um, San Francisco tech and uh, VC community that's yet to be launched. Um, my question is just around more novel methods maybe we haven't heard about on countering the misinformation. I'm particularly interested in the, the NGO approach and then you know reaching directly you know the, the Russian people um, so the the reaching directly the Russian people and um, the question about the previous question about um, supporting independent media and making it work better are actually related mm -hmm. um, so the question is um, I mean you could almost think of this as sort of reverse engineering this, you know, the polarization. 
I mean, very I guess one of the problems with this subject is very quickly you get from what is Russia doing in this foreign policy problem to much more fundamental problems about politics and how you reach people and the ways in which social media has created these divided audiences. Um, and so I would argue for um, a major research program to better understand Russian audiences and, and Kyrgyz audiences and Kazakh audiences. Um, we really don't know that much about them. I, I was involved in a, a very small project that looks at, um, that did some audience analysis on the Russian internet. And it's actually very interesting. You know, there are many different kinds of views. I mean, we tend to think about, you know, liberals versus pro-Putin people. Actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. There are different groups. Um, it may be that we need different messages for different groups. Um, and just telling people democracy is good and Putin is bad is maybe not the way to reach people. And, and we, um, it, m many of the cruder te techniques from the Cold War era aren't going to work in our era. And just, I mean, remember that the U.S., um, you know, in the 1970s and the 1980s, had there was a whole arsenal of arguments that we had actually. And the arguments were, you know, blue jeans, abstract art, um, you know, pop music, uh, you know, prosperity, and sort of five other things plus <clears throat> democracy. Um, and some of those things just don't work anymore. I mean, there's plenty of pop music in Russia. I mean, and it's, there's plenty of abstract art. You know, so some of the some of the arguments weren't artist artist. You know, we don't have the cultural power that they once did. But more understanding of Russian audiences, more work with um, media in those countries and in other countries um, trying to do the same. I mean, I keep thinking, is there a way to, OK, so we now have these fragmented audiences. Is there a way to reverse engineer that? You know, are there, you know, are there ways we can reinvent journalism to, to breach polarized divides? Are there ways of writing to get better, to convince people to read better information. Um, I don't really have any good answers to that that I can give you right now. Um, but I would like to see American universities and actually and European universities and, you know, it's not really a question of government funding, although there does need to be more funding for more research into that. How do we reach people? How do we understand these audiences? What, you know, what does the Kyrgyz internet look like? You know, who are the people likely to want to read? Um, you know, I don't know, um, you know, pro-American, even, even pro-American messaging so that we get through this, um, you know, this really hateful language about the United States. We've only begun to look at how to do that. We've been very slow and lax about trying to understand um, how these issues work in other countries. And I think um, that, you know, I keep, again, I keep saying the Russians, but I'm sure there are plenty of other, whereas understanding our own society has been something that's been very easy for um, for others to do. So divide, you know, we're, we're very divided. Others are divided as well. Having a much deeper research base was a kind of the beginning of the answer to some of these questions. And I'll just, sorry, that's not very satisfying. But. It's very satisfying. Um, and let me thank you on behalf of the, of the crew here. You have helped us understand the problem. You've given us ideas about what can be done. Um, we're close to the folks across the street. We have a couple of representatives from uh, across the street. Um, and we will be using this kind of ideas. Um, you've made the point a couple times, the Russians are pretty good at this. Um, they've been doing it longer than we have. It's not hard. That is, people anywhere can do it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's not inevitable that we win. 
this one. We, there's a lot of work that, that we need to do, and you've helped us do that. So please uh, join me in thanking Ann Applebaum. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.